And good afternoon. I've been practicing that all morning. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to Romans chapter 12. And I want to begin by reading our section of Scripture. Actually, I want to back up to the very first verse of Romans chapter 12, and I want to read the first uh, eight verses for us. So I'll give you a second to turn there, and then I'd ask you to give your full attention to the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or reasonable worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. As we saw last week, we are a people who are under pressure. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or an unbeliever. This reality is true for us all. We are under the constant pressure to be shaped and molded by the values, by the expectations, by the ideologies of this culture, that the secular, humanistic way of thinking that is anti-God, that wants to push God away and put man at the center. And in this worldly way of thinking, this worldly ideology, one of the dominant pressures we face is this quest for honor and status. This is just built into the fabric of our world. We are a people who love to prop one another up, who love celebrities, who love to praise people. Let me say it like this, Hollywood is our fault. It's our fault because we love this stuff. We, we love to praise people, to put them up on pedestals. And the reason we love to do this is because our hearts, in and of themselves, we long to be praised by other people. We give approval and we give praise to others because deep down inside, there's something pulling at us, pressuring us, and we long for the same kind of praise and approval from others. But in contrast, there is this wonderful pressure of God's mercy and grace that is intended by God to transform the way we think and therefore the way we behave. 
It is the opposite kind of pressure. It forces us into a mold that is different. And in many ways, it conflicts with this world around us, and it sets us apart. It's intended to pull you and me away from making much of ourselves and others, and instead, it is molding us to make much of Jesus Christ. It's pressuring us in a healthy way to see what Jesus has done for us and to respond reasonably, appropriately to this grace and mercy that has been lavished on us. How do we respond to our position in Christ? How do we respond to knowing that our supreme identity, our fundamental identity is found in our union with Jesus Christ? How do we respond to our newfound status in Christ? Paul is intending us to see how when we see our identity and our status and therefore approval that's found in Christ, when we see this, when we embrace this, it actually has this way of shaping our hearts and our affections and our desires. So if you remember the very first verse we read, Paul is appealing to us by the mercies of God. You see, it's, it's in acknowledging God's mercies, all of the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though we were sinners enslaved to sin, dead in our trespasses and sin, we have a, a Savior, a God who has loved us from eternity past, so much so that He has set His heart upon us. He sent His Son into this world to rescue and redeem us, to hang on a cross to pay for our sins. He rose victoriously for our justification. He is now exalted to the right hand of the Father where He is ruling and reigning supreme, and He is ruling in our hearts here and now. Amen? And it is because of these mercies of who we now are in Jesus Christ that Paul says, listen, when we, when we understand this and we contemplate it and we meditate upon it, it fuels the love of our heart for God. It's like dumping fuel onto a fire, and it ignites that fire, and it becomes a blazing, burning hot fire that now spreads out in and through our lives. This is what the gospel is intended to do in the hearts of God's people. Out of this great love, we are compelled to live for Him. If you have tasted the mercies of God, it is going to influence how you live today. This is why Paul calls this a reasonable worship. It will, it must lead to a life of worship. It leads, as we looked at last week, from a consecrated body to a renewed mind where we have this radical change in our worldview. It leads us to the ability to discern and approve the will of God. It gives us, in effect, right thinking. And that's what he gets at here in this passage. What does this look like? What does it mean to have right thinking that impacts how we live our lives? And I want to give you just a bit of a snapshot because what Paul is saying in these initial verses, they set the stage. We're going to have to keep coming back here. They set the stage for everything that's going to follow. You see, here's what this right thinking will look like, beginning in verse 3 all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. 
He's going to give us the answer as to what it means to have right thinking. And here's what he's going to tell us. It will first show itself in how we think about ourselves. We're going to spend most of our time looking at that this morning. Then, out of that, it's going to show us how we are to relate to other believers, to the family of God, to to each other in, in this place. And then he's going to tell us that this right thinking helps us relate to our enemies, those who despise us, those who persecute us, those who don't treat us the way we want to be treated. And then it's going to show us how right thinking helps us relate to our rulers, those who are in authority over us, placed there by God. And by the way, when we get to Romans 13, just keep this in mind. Paul is writing to a Roman church who is under, listen, the reign of Nero. It's not a government that's favorable towards Christianity. He's then going to show us that this right thinking helps us relate to unbelievers. And then it relates to our own desires. And eventually he's going to get to this place where he shows us how it relates to our own opinions and what we do with them. And listen, I I tell you all this because this is such good stuff. And this is so necessary Because when we think about living our lives for Jesus, my fear is this, and I've been trapped here before, so I hope this is helpful for some of you today. When we think about what it means to live a life for Jesus, we often think about doing something great or big for the kingdom. You know, I read biographies all the time of of great Christian saints, and I walk away and I think, man, I wish I could do something like that for Jesus. And sometimes we we, we get trapped in this thinking that to do something big for Jesus is ultimately what matters. But listen, that is far from the biblical account. Christianity is, is so much more unremarkable and so much more ordinary than that. Paul says something so profound in these coming chapters. He says that being a living sacrifice, it's not really about the big things in your life. It's about the little things. It's about the everyday things. It's about the things that you're going to face, the circumstances that are going to come into your life, the people that you're going to have to deal with. And today, we need to start at the most important place. You see, we can't think about all those other things until we learn how to think rightly about ourselves. If we get that right in light of thinking properly about God, then everything hopefully will fall into place. So here's what I want to show you. Three ways we need to learn to think rightly about ourselves. First, in order to think rightly about ourselves, we must understand the perilous problem of pride. I want you to notice what he says in verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, look at this, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, the reason Paul says this is because this is the default position of the human heart. And and I want you to keep in mind that he's writing to the church here. So, this this is not just the default position of the sinful unbeliever. This is the default position of every single human heart. We don't learn it, we don't acquire it, we don't develop it, we are born with it. If you don't believe me, have a baby. It is intrinsic to who we are. 
ever since the fall of man. And it corrupts all of our thoughts, all of our words, and all of our actions. Everything is tainted by it. And here's the reality. Listen, we cannot escape it. Not until Jesus returns or calls us home. Pride, self-love will be something we deal with and wrestle with all of our lives. And because of that, we need to understand what this actually means and what it often looks like in our lives. And here's the reason. Because it is our most fundamental problem. It is, in effect, a sin beneath every other sin. J.C. Ryle called it the mother of all sins. And this takes us, by the way, all the way back to verse 2. I know that's a long ways away from verse 3. But it reminds us, listen, that when we think about pride, we cannot think about pride the way the world thinks about it. We need to think about pride the way the Bible describes it, the way God wants us to think about it. And there's a world of difference between those two things. You see, the world wants us to believe that pride is actually not a problem. In fact, most of the world would try to argue that pride is a good thing. And they would disguise it or call it by another name, but, you know, arose, right, by any other name. They would call it self-esteem or confidence or you know, whatever other label you might want to put on it. But the world, again, wants us to believe that pride is not a problem for us. Our world often tries to tell us, not that we think too highly of ourselves, you know what I'm about to say, right? But that we think too lowly of ourselves. We need more self-esteem. We have this pumped into us. Some of us try to pump this into our kids. The, the, the agenda of our parenting is more self-esteem. Believe more in yourself. You can be anything you want. That's a lie. Many of us have many, or serious, excuse me, misconceptions about pride. Some of us think that pride is only about self-promotion or self-exaltation. You know, the kind of person who walks around bragging, look at me, you know, they, they just got strut around, they got swagger. But you see, the Bible describes another form of pride. It also says that pride comes in the form of self-demotion, self-loathing. It is a preoccupation, at its root, a preoccupation with self. And we just need to understand that it manifests in many different ways. But the essence of pride, listen, the essence of pride, the heart of pride is this. Listen, this is important. Distrust. It's distrust. You can think of yourself highly by prancing around like you're the cat's meow. Or, listen, you can beat yourself up, but in both instances, here's the reality, you're not trusting God and what He says about you. We see people who are um, outwardly prideful. I think we've seen those kinds of people, and we assume, don't we, like the people who walk around, we actually assume that that kind of pride, we say, you know, that person's insecure, right? We see that, that outward display of arrogance, and we immediately, a lot of us think, man, that's insecure. They, they must be um, compensating for something. Clearly, there's some significant insecurity in their lives. But I wonder, listen, I wonder if you've ever seen that there is a pride behind insecurity. 
that the person who walks around constantly insecure isn't, isn't somebody who's necessarily humble or isn't humble at all. It's the person who's, who's saying, like, I, 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 I must be like this. I must present myself like this. I'm not living up to, to, to other people's expectations or my expectations, and so I'm never going to live up to this. this I'm, I beat myself up because of this. You see, the statement, I'll never be good enough, is not a statement of humility but pride. Let me make one qualification. Unless it's a confession of your need for Jesus. So why do we do this? Well, the truth is, is that we measure ourselves or define ourselves by something that God Himself has not provided. Something other than His will or His design or His intent for us. We create a standard of our own making, and it's something, again, that pushes God away from the picture. We determine what success looks like. We determine how somebody experiences value or dignity or worth, and it's something apart from God. We are looking to establish, listen, an identity not in God, but apart from God, and that always leads to spiritual bankruptcy and destruction. It leaves us in pain, it leaves us frustrated, and it leaves us, at the end of the day, incredibly insecure. But all of it, all of it is, at the root, pride. Pride looks for its own solutions, and it avoids or rejects God's solutions. So here's, here's a question for you. Where do you turn to find your identity? And we could stand here and list off a number of things that you may run to to find your identity. Maybe it's in your career, maybe it's in a hobby, maybe it's in your possession. I mean, on and on the list may go. But what Paul is identifying and addressing in this text is what is actually most common in all of us. And it actually is the reason that we often run to those other things to find our identity. It's the identity issue behind our identity issues. And the issue that he addresses in our hearts is this, that we measure ourselves by the perceptions and opinions of other people. We can say it like this, we are inclined as sinful human beings to fear man, not God, to long for the praises of man, not the praise of God, to long for the approval of man, not the approval of God. We measure ourselves against them, then we puff ourselves up, or we beat ourselves up, depending on how we are doing. Now, let me just say that it's not entirely wrong to care about what others think about us, okay? So, don't just think like, yeah, we can never care about what other people think about us. Let me give you an example of this, that the Word of God says that elders, the leaders of the church, are to be thought well of by outsiders. Perception is important as long as it matches reality. But it's wrong to be driven by and find our identity in what other people think about us. And again, this has always been the problem for humanity. There's nothing new under the sun. But I would say that every generation we see the world concocting, coming up with new ways to foster this and cultivate this in our hearts. I'll tell you what I think one of the most dangerous tools out there is, should be of no surprise to you, but social media. Some of you are like, oh, don't go there again. I have to. Listen, because we, we know this, and, and this is something that not, it's not just the church that's saying this, the world is telling us this. This is this makes it unbelievably scary. Social media in particular has proven, hasn't it, detrimental to our thinking about ourselves. It's just, 
ourselves. It's just, it's just this, this game where we compare ourselves to everybody else and try to see where we stack up. And you can say, I'm not doing that, but I don't believe you. We're always wanting to see how somebody else is doing and where we kind of are fitting along the totem pole. Are we in or are we out? And by the way, the dominant way that social media influencers are influencing is not towards products, but towards perception. Influencing the next generation about how they perceive and therefore measure their worth and value. Constantly pointing towards the superficial, how we look, what we watch, what we wear, who we support, what we have. And the truth is that we are all so easily swayed, whether we realize it or not, which is why Paul has to say what he does. And if I could just say this, your issue and my issue, by the way, church, is not a lack of self-esteem. Some of you really need to hear this because some of you are you're so infatuated with this idea of self-esteem, and you, you need to hear this. Your greatest issue is not a lack of self-esteem, okay? It's not. It's not that you think too little of yourself. That is not your problem. It is not that you need to see more value in yourself. It is not to see that you need to believe more in yourself. That's what the world says. Here's what your greatest problem is and what my greatest problem is. It's that we often think too highly of ourselves. And the reason is, listen, because we cannot take our eyes off of ourselves. Other people simply become a mirror for who we are or who we are not or who we ought to be. And your problem in mind is that we keep our eyes, listen, right here, not right there. This is what the Word of God constantly is telling us. Set your mind on things above, not on things below. You see, it's the same issue. He, Paul deals with this in Colossians chapter 3. That the greatest issue you have is this self-centered, worldly, humanistic way of thinking. And the way, listen, to combat worldly thinking and self-centeredness is not to simply take your eyes off of yourself. That's the starting point. It's to put your eyes on Jesus. Our greatest problem is that we do not treasure Jesus as the treasure of all treasures. We do not believe he is sufficient enough, he is valuable enough, he is beautiful enough, he is worthy enough, he is satisfying enough. You see, this is, this is our constant problem. So what do we do? We turn to the world, we turn to other people, and we let them dictate for us what is satisfying. We let them dictate for us the expectations. We let them dictate for us worth and value and dignity. And God says, get your face away from there. Take it off of yourself. So many of us just looking at ourselves constantly and look up and stare at the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is the perilous problem of pride that we must reject Instead, in order to think rightly, you must secondly understand the sobering standard of Scripture. I've been kind of leading us into it already, but look at what he says. He says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Do you hear what he says? He says, listen, sober up. It's time for a little bit of sobriety. Why do you have to tell people to sober up? 
You can say it. Because they're what? They're drunk. What do, you, what do you mean drunk? It means, means to be intoxicated. It means to be under the influence. Do you see why he uses this, wor- this word? The, the, the picture is so vivid. The problem with so many of us is that we're so intoxicated by the world, we're so under the influence of the world's way of thinking, that the answer to this problem and predicament is to be sobered up appropriately. To no longer be under the influence of the sinful desires of our flesh and the world's way of thinkings but to be self-controlled in our thinking. We need to flush out the self-centered, self-promoting toxins of the world, and we need to rehydrate with the water of the Word. We need to stop guzzling the soul-destroying sewage of this present evil age and start gulping the life-giving waters of the age to come. A correct and right assessment of yourself, sober judgment, requires that we have the right standard by which we can be measured. So if, again, we're looking at the world's way of measuring ourselves and we're throwing that out and saying, okay, well, then what is the right standard? Notice again what he says at the end of verse 3. He says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. In other words, there is a standard of faith, a measure of faith by which we are to measure ourselves. The measure of faith that he talks about here, it's not speaking about the degree of faith or amount of faith that that you possess. So somebody might read this and say, like, well, this is about you conjuring up more faith and really just believing more about what God says about you. That's not what he's talking about. It's not what he's talking about at all. The idea is that God has allotted to each believer a standard of faith by which we all measure ourselves. What is the standard of faith that God has assigned? The standard is the Scriptures. The standard is the Word of God. This book right here is the standard of the faith. And and it points us, listen, the reason it's the standard is because it points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The greatest standard of all is Jesus Christ. We are to measure ourselves by the standard of Jesus Christ. One author, one commentator says it like this, it is a standard by which to measure ourselves that this for all Christians is the same, namely saving faith in Christ crucified, and that only this gospel of the cross, indeed only Christ himself, in whom God's judgment and mercy are revealed, can enable us to measure ourselves soberly. This is what we saw in verse 2. It is the Scriptures that renew our mind. It is the Scriptures, the will of God, that helps us properly see who we are. The Scriptures uphold Christ as the standard for our lives and our view of ourselves. You see, our self-image must start and begin not by looking in a mirror where we make ourselves the measure of all things, but instead we must behold ourselves in the mirror of Christ and His Word. This goes right back to our identity. You see, when we look at Jesus, it's not looking at Jesus and saying, this is who He is and this is in light of Him who I'm not. It's looking at Jesus to see, I am in Christ and Christ is in me. 
You, you see the difference? So the way we measure ourselves is not like, well, Jesus is way up here and I'm way down there. It's like, that. no, no. Jesus is the Son of God. He is perfect in holiness. He fulfilled all righteousness. He paid the penalty for sin, right? He has exalted the right hand of the Father. He's raised for, you see, now all of that, all the blessings that are in Christ are now mine because I am in Christ. Do you see how it forms our identity? I am, in essence, everything that Christ is because he gives it all to me. When I stand before God, in other words, as a follower of Jesus Christ, God doesn't look at me and say, well, let's see how you stack up against the rest of those other cool people I decided to call into my family. No, no, in fact, we know this, there are not many mighty, there are not many noble, there are not many wise. There's not much here to stack up against, no offense. We stand before God, and Christ stands for us. We stand in Him. And the acceptance and the approval we find is not based, therefore, on anything we have earned, on anything we've accomplished, on anything that anybody else thinks about us. It's all based upon what Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf and freely given to us by His grace and His grace alone. Amen? That is awesome. Who cares what the world says? Who cares what the world thinks? We know what God says, and we know what God thinks. God says, I love you. I accept you. You are my child. And because, by the way, church, there's nothing you could do to earn your salvation, guess what? There's nothing you can do to lose it. If Christ has earned all your approval before God, that approval will never be lost we stand secure in Christ. He is our identity. So how do I know if I'm using the standard of the Word of God, if Christ and the Scriptures are, are my standard for how I am truly seeing myself, or, or, or how do I know if I'm actually, actually slipping into using the standard of the world? I want to give you a few helpful ways to kind of identify this in your own life. Because the truth is, listen, the truth is this is not like a, you know, a one shot and it's done. That you're forever going to just find your identity in Christ and you're never going to struggle with this. The truth is this is a daily battle. And there are some ways that we can actually see that we're sliding back into a worldly way of thinking. Here, I want to give you two. I'll give them to you up front and then we'll, we'll quickly look at them. Spend more time on the first one. Can you receive criticism without being destroyed? That's the first one. Or can you receive compliments without being inflated? These are two ways you can kind of test where you're finding your identity. If you can't receive criticism without being destroyed, listen, your view of self is being dictated by others. So, you know how this goes. You know, when you're criticized, when somebody brings something to your attention and they put their finger on an area of your life that clearly is a problem or needs to change... And that's an area where you actually think so highly of yourself. Maybe comes along and says, you know what? The way you treat your wife actually isn't pleasing to the Lord. And I think, I think your tone and the sharpness and the lack of love and care is a real problem in your marriage. And meanwhile, you're sitting here and you've, you've propped yourself up as like you're this really godly husband. And all of a sudden, somebody comes along and presses in on it. And all of a sudden, it drives you to despair and discouragement. It destroys you. Listen, because it meant so much to you. But you see, the mark of humility and identity in Christ is that when you're criticized, you're like, 
yeah, that stings. Ah, man, that hurts. But yes, I, I see it. I know it. Man, I got so much room to grow. I can receive this. It's hard, but I can receive this. I need this. But you can tell where your heart is at when someone criticizes you and you respond either in anger or despair. You know, some of us, like, we got these two default positions. Some of us are more explosive. We get pressed on an area that's, that's kind of an idol, and all of a sudden, we like, we're just, how dare you speak to me like that? I'll tell you what's wrong with you. Some of you, that's your marriage. And that's not funny. Because it's not right. Some of you are, like, pressed on, and you're, you're like, oh, man, just I'm never going to be good enough. And both of those are prideful responses. An idol has been touched upon. Maybe you thought you were actually farther along than you were. And God reveals that you're not, and it devastates you. And let me just say this, another kind of way you can assess this. You know the condition your heart is in when you contrast the way you respond to what you read in Scripture with how somebody else then comes along and points something to, out to you. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you can read the Bible, and you can agree with the Bible and say, yeah, I got a real problem here, and you're like, man, oh, God, help me. You're broken over it. And then somebody comes along beside you, maybe a friend in, in, the, in the faith, and they says the exact same thing to you, and you're like, don't talk to me like that. Do you think you are? Why, why do we do this? Because I think, again, our problem is that we love the praises of men more than we love the praise of God. And this leads us to the second way that we can know if we're using the standard of the word or the standard of the world. Can I receive compliments without being inflated? And some of this is just very obvious, right? Do, do, do we let things go to our head? Do we get puffed up and conceited when somebody says kind things to us or they want to pay us a compliment? And you know, the, the, like, the, this is a funny thing in the church because people will often, I've had people say to me, you know, things like, well, I just, I just want to be careful. I don't want to pay people too many compliments. I've had people say to me personally, I, you know what? I, I don't want to give you any compliments because I don't want it to go to your head. And I'm like, thank you? Like, I'm not sure. Like, like I, I'd encourage you, but I'm afraid, I'm, af I'm afraid that you just get all puffed up and conceited. Can we, just, can we just say this? Listen, we are not responsible for how other people respond to encouragement and compliments, okay? But the Bible encourages encouragement. Can we agree to that? Okay, so I want to err there. Like, I want to be an encouraging person. I want to be someone who builds people up, who lifts people up. And I get the tendencies, but listen, let everybody respond before the Lord on their own. We need to respond, and the right response, sure, ought to be, praise the Lord, thank you. That's very kind of you. There's a right way to receive compliments. Some people, listen, some people, when they're complimented, they're super weird about it. And that's not okay either. In fact, that's often a form of, of pride as well, this false humility, right? You, you know those people. And if you're one of these people, you need to stop it. You know, when somebody comes and they want to compliment you and say, man, I just want to thank the Lord for how he's, and you're like, whoa! Like they're, that, that, no, no glory here. All glory to God. It's like they're about to burst out in song. Like, just praise, praise him, pray, oh, nothing of me. I, I am but a worm, you know, like that's, that's not okay either. That's weird. Don't do that stuff. Just simply say thank you. That's really kind. Praise God. Okay, that's it. Simple, right? Don't be weird, but don't let it go to your head. Here's the deal. Listen, your identity is not found in critiques or compliments. It's found in Christ. Can we, get, can we agree with that? 
It's not found in critiques or compliments. It's found in Christ. And the Word of God is your pure and perfect critique. James 1 says that the Word of God is like a mirror that shows who we are in Christ if you're a believer. And it shows what we are to become, pointing us to be molded into the very image of Christ all by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. It shows us what's wrong and what must be done to be made right. It holds up the perfect one, Jesus Christ, who is, yes, our ultimate standard, the one we strive to look like in every way. But it also reminds us, as it holds up Christ, that He is our supreme identity, that all the approval we need is found in Him and is given to us by God. Christ is not only our standard for approval, He is our source of approval. Jesus Christ the righteous, we are robed in that righteousness. And at the end of the day, listen, all we are and all we have is found in Him as believers. So in order to think rightly about ourselves, we must understand this lastly, listen, the gracious gifts of God. All of this, as we understand ourselves, as we hold ourselves up against the standard of God's Word and ultimately the standard of Christ, this now influences, listen, how we not only see one another in the family of God, but how we understand ourselves in relation to the family of God. In verse 4 and 5, and again, we're going to pick up more on this next week So we're not going to deal with it in full today. He says this, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. He gives this illustration, this this metaphor of the body. And ultimately what what he unpacks for us are three characteristics of the body of Christ He talks about first the characteristic of the unity of the body of Christ, the diversity of the body of of Christ, and the mutuality of the body of Christ. And we need to just quickly look at those three things to understand the point of this passage. First, unity. And to understand unity, we must treasure first God's gracious gift of salvation. This is what He's been driving into our hearts. The grace that I have received in the gospel has not only saved me, it's actually saved countless other people. God has saved me into a family with brothers and sisters. He saved me into a body with many members. And you see, this this here, understanding this unity and this picture of the body, is how we learn to value one another. And to appreciate one another without seeking the approval of one another. Humility here is essential. It's absolutely essential and it is actually expressed in our unity. Do you realize that a unified church only happens when you have a humble church? And so when you see a unified church, you want to know what you're actually seeing? A beautiful expression of gospel humility. You're seeing a people live out what Paul is talking about here. A people who are not thinking too highly of themselves. And so it's critical that we, we see how, how essential this is for the kind of unity that God wants us to experience and enjoy. 
By the way, this idea of unity, as we've talked about in the past, this is so important, especially because of the season that we have been in, the season that our world is in. There just is is so much division, not only in our culture, in society, but there's division that's just wreaking havoc in the church of Jesus Christ. And and I've never seen, I've never seen this kind of division in my lifetime. And, And I know I'm not that old, but I'm old enough where I've seen a few things. It's fascinating to me that, that, you know, Jesus in John 17, his high priestly prayer, incredible passage, and and I want you to consider this. As Jesus is getting ready to leave his disciples, okay, he knows he's going to be crucified. He knows he's going to um, ascend into heaven to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Jesus has this moment. John records this in John 17. He has this moment where he prays for the church. And I don't know about you, but if you were to pray anything for the church, if, if you knew your, your closest friends were listening in and you wanted to not only pray but convey a powerful message, let me ask you, what would be the one thing you would pray for? What would be the one thing you would be most concerned about for your people? Do you want to know what Jesus prays for? Unity. He prays that we would be a people who are united, unified. And it's helpful just to remember the heart of Jesus for his church. There are plenty of reasons to divide, but my fear is is that most people aren't as focused on being united as they ought to be. We've got a, in our culture today, talk about worldly thinking versus um, thinking that is forged by the Word of God. There's these discussions going around about pronouns. I know that you guys are all familiar with this. But how we identify ourselves. What pronouns are we going to use? And I think, by the way, this is going to become increasingly more common. You're going to have more and more people talking about how they, they want to be identified by these pronouns and not these pronouns. And, and it's just, just what happens when we live in a mixed-up world that is ruled by Satan, and he breeds so much division and confusion. But look, with all this discussion about pronouns these days, I was thinking about this this week. How are we the church to identify ourselves? So I've got some pronouns for you, Okay. Three pronouns. The church needs to reject the pronoun me. It needs to embrace the pronoun we. And it needs to promote the pronoun he. As in he must increase. But you see, that's the way it happens. And that's what he's getting at with this metaphor of the body. If we're all about me, Pride is going to rule, it is going to divide. But if we're all about we, and understanding how we all fit together, then we're going to function in a healthy way, the way a body ought to, and then all of this, all that we do is going to be about Him, and Him him increasing. We are one body knit together, intricately connected. That's what he tells us here. The body of Christ, we need to see this, is a gracious gift of God. But secondly, note this. In order to promote unity, we must learn to celebrate diversity. God's gracious gifts, the gifts of of people, of one another, and, and the spiritual giftedness that is supposed to flourish in the context of the church. And this doesn't need much explanation, right? We all have different functions. That's what he's talking about. There are many members. Not all have the same functions. Like, you're not all afoot. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12. Like, you're not, like, if we're all afoot, 
I was going to say we'd never get anywhere, but we'd, we'd go somewhere, but we'd never be able to do anything. Just all feet. We're different. We have different backgrounds. We have different abilities. We're different ages and ethnicities. We have different experiences. God, God has wired us in a multitude of ways. And instead of being frustrated that everybody's not like me, we need to celebrate that everybody's not like me. That, that there's this beautiful diversity that reflects the beauty of God's creation. I mean, diversity is expressed in all of creation. Do you realize that? You, you see it everywhere you look. Our God is a God of diverse beauty, and we should see it and celebrate it in the church of Jesus Christ. God has gifted you and wants to use you. And here's what we see. When we see this all as, as God's gracious gift to the church, here's what this means. We don't value some gifts above other gifts. We don't prop some people up because they have, you know, more dominant gifts or greater measures of gifts or, or more public gifts, right? Nobody is better than anybody else in the body of Christ. Can we get an amen? You want to know why? Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all came in the same way. God may choose to gift some of us like this and some of us like this and greater gifts here and greater gifts there, but it is never, your giftedness is never for the purpose of self-exaltation. It is for the purpose, listen, of edification of the community of saints. The reason you're gifted the way you are is not so you can walk around just like, oh, look at me, I'm so good. Ah. You know, it's like, it's like, no, it's like, no. So you can get low and say, how can I come alongside the people that God has saved and brought into his family and made a part of the body? And how can I use what he has given me to affect the growth of the whole so that God gets all the glory? There's one head in the church. His name is Jesus Christ. He's the one who gets the glory. Everyone else, listen, we're all just some part that God is going to use, and I trust He'll use in great ways, but He will do it not for our glory, but for His. You see, this diversity is intended to foster this mutuality. We are to be a blessing to one another. We are to see, as Paul says, that each member belongs to all the others. I just wonder, again, we'll get into this more next week, but I wonder what would happen if, listen, Redemption Church, this church, our church, this local church, this, this local expression of God's greater universal church, I wonder what would happen if this was a place where we came not to simply get something out of the church, but to give something to the church. Where we came to use those gifts freely given to us by God's grace for the good and upbuilding and benefit of others. Where we were rejecting individualism and isolation and embracing ministry in community. You see, to be united to Christ is to be united to the church. And I want to press some of you here today. Because this is intended to go well beyond mere church attendance. This is about church engagement. This is about serving one another. And listen, I just I, I need to say this as, as so many of you, first of all, can I just say how, how 
how incredibly grateful I am for, for the amount of servants we have in this church. Like, I, I am overwhelmingly encouraged as I look across this room and I see so many people giving so much to be a blessing to this church family. Some of you don't even know how you're being served, but you are being served so faithfully. But I want to say this to some of you in here today. If you're new here today, just kind of sit on the sidelines just for a minute. We hope you jump off eventually. But, but some of you here, you've been here a long time and you're not serving at all. You're a spectator. And, and what, what, is, what is evident based on this text is that you're here not to give, but to get. But, but here's the reality. If you're actually getting the way you're supposed to, do you want to know what that means? You're going to turn around and be giving the way you're supposed to. So there's some kind of a disconnect in some of your hearts and minds that I just, I graciously want to address with you, and I want to say to you today that that is not the way God has designed you to function in the body of Christ. We need you. God has placed you here so that you can use your gifts for the building up of this church family. So I'm going to call some of you today, today, step off of the sidelines, get in the game, and start serving. Listen, not outside of this church. You can do that too. In this church, this is where you're a member. This is where God's placed you. And this is the place where if you, by the grace of God, would step up and use what God has given you, this place will benefit to the glory and honor of God. And who doesn't want that? So let's strive together. To be committed to Christ is to be committed to the church. To esteem Christ is to esteem the church. Why? Because Jesus is the head of the church. We are His children, His bride, and His body. There is only one head who gets all the honor, all the praise, and all the glory all we need and all we have is Christ. Jesus is our life. Amen, church? He bought us with a price. So let us glorify Him in our bodies, and let us glorify Him in our body. Let's pray. God in heaven, we love you. We're thankful for how you, by your grace, have purchased for yourself a people, a people of your own choosing, and you have designed your church so beautifully, so perfectly. You call us to a unity and, Lord, to, to celebrate the diversity in this place and to see, Father, that that diversity is intended to be used for the edification of the whole, the strengthening, the building up of the body so that we might be a people who continue to press on and faithfully fulfill the mission that you have called us to. Oh God, help us, we pray, to set our eyes not on ourselves, not on the world around us, but to set our eyes on Jesus. We confess that Jesus is our life. He is our everything. And we pray, Lord, now that as we sing and respond to you, that you would drive that truth into our heart, make it the reality that we, we believe, that we stand upon, and that we live out every day of our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.